Thank you. Good morning. Sorry, it's been bugging me. Pop that there. Um, are we doing all right? Um, we are, I think, as a kind of nation, um, it, the West in general, quite probably, in a, in a kind of slightly unprecedented moment in history. Um, since the war, we have been in, in a period of uh, a quite unusual stability in a relative turn of phrase. Um, from a historical point of view, at least, most of us haven't experienced that much kind of crises. And we find ourselves in a moment in history where we seem to have a kind of cascade of crises. You know, we have the COVID pandemic. We have the war in Ukraine. We have supply chain issues that kind of follow on from that. We have then uh, a cost of living crisis that's affecting, you know, millions. Um, and, and crisis goes on and on and on. You know, we've said that we've got a crisis then in the kind of public sector in terms of pay. We've had crisis at the set, uh, heart of government uh, where it's almost quite literally fallen apart. These crises cascade. And I don't know what your response is to that. I suspect we respond in one of kind of two ways. One, perhaps, is to sort of find ourselves in a mild state of sort of anxious panic, you know, just nervous about what's going on. Like, I just feel like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to do, but it's awful and I don't want it to carry on. I think another response we can often take is, is the kind of bury our head in the sand um, approach, where we're just trying to ignore it. Maybe we're fortunate enough to you know, have financial circumstances that mean we can kind of inoculate ourselves from the cost of living crisis and we can kind of almost forget it's happening. But crisis goes on and, and, and crisis is one of these really difficult things to deal with because it's inevitably beyond control. That's the whole nature of a crisis. It's something that we cannot control. We cannot simply stop. It's happening to us. It's not something that we can necessarily... Um, you know, interact with in a positive way that changes it completely in the way that we would like. But there's something I think that resides within all of us and I think rises up acutely at moments of crisis and, and that's this. It's a, it's a hope that our present circumstances aren't it. That it could be better, that things could be different, that, you know, despite you know, despair at sort of, you know, politics. People still hope and yearn for more and, you know, give their lives to it. You know, people still, despite the kind of, you know, environmental disasters around the world, give their lives to campaigning and trying to, to see change. You know, we have this hope that this doesn't need to be it, that there could be more at the heart of all of us somewhere lying dormant or perhaps kind of stemming forward is this hope for renewal, that things might be renewed, that this might not be the final word. But the question is this, is that wishful thinking or is it realistic hope? Because hope is always something that's based on something. You know, it, it's based on some kind of evidential reason that actually things can be different rather than just a longing and a hope and a kind of, oh gosh, Lena, please let it be change. You know, can we have realistic hope? And the story of Jesus is a story of renewal. It's a story of a God who breaks into this world to change it, to, to renew it, to, to do something, to, to change the circumstances for the good. And what we're going to be doing over this next few weeks is we're going to be looking at this theme of renewal. And for that, we're going to look at the book of Ezekiel. We're going to look at some latter chapters in the book of Ezekiel. If you don't know the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel is a prophet um, writing to the people of Israel um, and kind of the moment where the, the chapters we're going to look at are, are, are 
are chapters where Ezekiel is prophesying renewal over the people. And he's prophesying renewal over the people of Israel in a time of unprecedented crisis. Because the people of Israel have been taken off into exile. Their society isn't just kind of fracturing, it's been destroyed. Their culture isn't just threatened, it's been eviscerated. You know, their, their churches are not just kind of, you know, like the church in England is, is you know, ever increasingly becoming an irrelevance, but their church was just knocked down. It didn't exist. The temple was, was completely destroyed. They had nothing. You know, the great and the good were taken off into a foreign nation and kind of subjected to this kind of indoctrination program. And it's in the middle of this crisis that Ezekiel speaks these words of promise. These words of promise from God, these words of a promise of renewal. Let's have a look. We're going to read from verse 22. That's good. That's what's on the screen. That's always reassuring. Um, feel free to read on the screen. Feel free to grab a Bible if you've got one. Follow on your phone. It says this. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Stop there for a second. Like, interesting, isn't it? Like, how's God going to prove his holiness? How's God going to prove his goodness? Is he going to do some magic, everything better? Is he going to, you know, cast some spell over the land? No, God proves his goodness through his people. He proves his holiness through his people. His people who, you know, earlier we, we read, it says, the people of Israel were living in their own land. They defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Like if you read the story of the Old Testament, um, one massive message is basically the reason why you guys have ended up in such a mess. The reason why you guys have ended up in exile is because of what you've done. It's because of the fact that you've just gone your own way. You've kind of ignored God. You've chosen to define what's right and wrong for yourself. You've tried to kind of live life autonomously, and it's led you into a mess. And despite the fact that these are people just like us, because I don't know about you, but we are people, I am a person who, who makes a mess, who hurts people, who thinks selfishly, who can be prideful. And yet, Ezekiel speaks this promise that he's going to show his holiness through his people. And that promise is as true today as it was then. We read on. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. 
I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, the land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea to do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I don't know about you, but I I read that and there's just such a yearning, isn't there? For renewal, the kind of renewal it speaks of, we want to see. You know, what does it talk about? It talks about you know the the the, the corn, you know the corn coming out of the land, the land kind of bearing forth fruit again, so that there will be no famine. Don't we long for a world where there is enough for everyone to eat? You know, our world is 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 in in many ways fractured, isn't it? The very ground, because of you know. Uh, things like climate change, because of things like over-farming, does not produce the food it should. There are entire areas of the world that literally cannot produce the crops needed to sustain the people that live in them. Don't we have a yearning for that to be renewed? Don't we have a yearning for that to be restored, for the ozone layer to be repaired, for the ground to become fertile once again and produce the crop which feeds everyone? Don't we have a yearning for a world where no one needs to go hungry because there is enough food? Like, you know, he goes on because the, the renewal that's talked about here isn't just some kind of like nice inner spiritual thing. It's this whole worldly thing. It's everything. It's, it's the very ground itself, but it's also society and culture and buildings. You know, he says, I will resettle your towns. Your ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate. You know, do you drive through those places ever? Maybe you, you find you live in one where it just feels sad. It just feels like people have given up on it. And in turn, the people who, who live there have given up on it. And the, the shops are boarded up and there's no culture. There's no amenities. It's all just left. The green space is kind of overgrown and filled with rubbish. And then we just long for those places to be rebuilt, for them to be places of flourishing, for them to be places of culture, for them to be places you know, where, where people live in, in a place of beauty and joy and harmony with one another. Then we just have a yearning for that. That's part of what is being promised here. You know, don't we have a yearning for, for the church to be renewed? You know, the, the church is, you know, the Church of England is, is increasingly shrinking. Um, you know, ch- all sorts of other churches and denominations are in, in a place of radical decline. Young people have been leaving the church at an unprecedented rate, but perhaps more depressingly than that, the church has become something of irrelevance. It's become the nice building that pretties up our kind of nice place where we live. But, but that's about it. It's not making an impact. It's not changing things. It's not standing as a beacon of hope. It's just a nice building. Like, and don't we just yearn for the, for the church to be renewed? I, I, I read this, um, this vision for the renewal of the church this uh, past couple of weeks by a guy called Tim Keller. And it just made my heart sing. 
because it just spoke of, I think, what we all yearn for and what the church has kind of created for and intended for. I want to read a bit of it. I won't read the whole thing. You can Google it. Um, the whole thing's actually an 80-page document, so you'll be delighted to know I'm not reading that. Um, but I just want to read a bit. He says, We envision a day where cities are filled with flourishing neighborhoods that point to the churches within them as a crucial source of their life and strength. Where new churches are being planted twice as fast as churches are closing, and two-thirds of the people in the new churches are formerly unchurched and non-believers. Where large percentages of Christians become able to speak about their faith and their daily relationships in ways that are not perceived by most of the recipients as offensive or awkward, but instead helpful and positive. Where the movement of the young out of the churches is completely reversed, and children and youth are equipped to see not only the beauty of the historic faith, faith, but the deeply inadequate alternative identities, narratives, and answers provided by the culture. Where Christians are famous for being the ones who show up in force first to help victims when there is any disaster. Where Christian churches would be known as the most racially and culturally diverse institutions in society. Where the church becomes publicly recognized as a refuge for sufferers, known for its ability to help people through grief, pain, and loss where an increasing number of Christian artists working out both the realism of the Christian worldview about sin and the confident expectation of restorative grace produce high-quality stories, music, visual art, all with the results that more people see the beauty and intuitive plausibility of Christianity and at the same time people in general across our society will increase in hope. Where there is robust, respected and growing community of intellectuals and scholars that hold unashamedly to Christian doctrine, who are active in every academic field of inquiry, producing scholarship that contributes to and alters the field. A growing presence in universities. Where Christians are used, known for their just use of power, so that in business, Christians are known for being less selfish and ruthless and more generous to peers, employees and customers. In social entrepreneurship, Christians are known to be fueling an explosion of creative and effective non-profits that target every major social problem, leading to a measurable decrease in the poverty rate and change in other statistics of social well-being. I could go on. Um, it goes on for quite a while. Don't we long for that? For the church to be something that is salty, that kind of impacts this world, where people see us as a beacon of hope, where people see us as a place of care, where people see us as a place of meaning, where people can find answers to the questions we long for. Don't we long to see the church renewed and restored to be what Jesus intended it to be? And, and here we have Ezekiel in the middle of a moment of crisis delivering a promise that God is going to renew all things. And so this vision isn't just wishful thinking or a kind of pipe dream. It, it, it's something that God wants to do in his people. It's something that we're never going to see, that we're not going to see the full completion of until Jesus comes again, but it's something that we can begin to see the first fruits of in the now. Why? Because he's promised it. And I read things like this, and, and, and I think, yes. And we want to pray for that. And we do, and we, we, we want to pray for, you know, um, you know, the ground to be healed, the host and lair to be repaired. We, we want to pray for these places to be rebuilt. We want to, we want to seek God that the church might be renewed. And, uh, but, but here's the question. How does that renewal happen? Where does it begin? Because the interesting thing is this. It doesn't begin with a renewal of the land. It doesn't begin with a renewal of society and culture. 
It begins as God renews us. It begins here. For I'll take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into the land. Here we go. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then, dot, 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 then, the renewal that God is seeking to bring on this earth begins in us. The pattern of renewal we see in scripture is always one of personal renewal that leads to corporate renewal that leads to societal renewal. God renews a kind of a few. We see the renewal spread out to the many and it starts to then impact society and the way things kind of happen in, in, in the land we live. You know, I think many of us, myself included, we, we, we kind of just want to pray that God will sort it. We just want to pray that God will, will do it because it, it feels easier because we, you know, God, please, please sort out this thing over there. But the renewal starts with us. And herein we see this. We see what I call the push and pull of renewal. The push and pull of renewal. Because we feel this pull, we feel this like draw into this renewal promise. We want to see it happen. We want, yeah, we're like, yes, God, come on, do this. But at the same time, there's this push, this pushback. Why? Because the renewal starts in us. And here's the thing. You know, it, it sounds nice. But let's just think about it for a minute. What does he say? He says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities. Have you ever cleansed a room? It's not a gentle process, is it? It's quite rigorous. You know, it's a scrubbing, isn't it? Like, what does he say? He says, I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And, you know, what is an idol? An idol is something you put your trust in that isn't God, that ultimately does not deliver on the promises that it kind of offers. You know, you, you think, well, if only I get to this stage of success or if only I get to this degree of affluence or if only I have this kind of relationship or if only I'm perceived in this way by this group of people, like, then life will be all right. You know, an idol is something that we put our trust in that isn't God and therefore ultimately doesn't deliver on its promises. And he says, I- I'll remove your idols from you. And we're like, oh, brilliant. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Why would I want to worship an idol? That's just stupid. But the thing is this. Idols are things we love. They're things we trust. When you have something you love and something you trust, even if it's something stupid removed from you, it's painful. It's difficult. We feel a sense of loss because we think it's the answer. It's not, but, but we think it's the answer. And so it's not comfortable. He says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Again, it sounds great. But like, you know, I don't know if anyone's had sort of, you know, a heart transplant. It's not an operation you skip out of the next day and go for a marathon. You know, it's, it's, it's a big procedure because it's a big change. And herein lies the push. Because what you see in scripture is this is that renewal always begins with repentance. Renewal always begins with repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning away from things that aren't of God, things that are destroying us, things that we're putting our trust in that aren't delivering on their promises that aren't him. You know, what does it say? It says, 
Um, then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. Here's the truth. Repentance isn't comfortable. And so renewal isn't comfortable. But renewal is good. Because here's what happens when you pray that prayer, God, yes, I want you to renew me. I want you to restore me. I want you to remake me in your, you know, in, in your likeness, in your, to, to be more like you. Is that God answers that prayer, but it, it means he starts to surface the stuff in our lives that is a bit ugly. And, and, and we're praying that prayer, and all of a sudden we become a bit aware of our selfishness. I'm like, gosh, I don't want to see that. Or we become a bit aware of our pride. Or we become a bit aware of something we're putting our trust in, but we kind of don't want to admit it. And and so we we push it away. Because I think we instinctively believe that following Jesus and Christianity should be a comfortable, nice experience. That church should be this comfortable, lovely experience where we just have nice feelings the whole time. But that's not true. There are moments where it's profoundly difficult because we get confronted with the reality of where we are. Not in in a harsh way, not in a cruel way, because God loves us. But because God wants to renew us, he wants to restore us. He he surfaces those things, not to shame us, but so that he can heal us, so that he can restore us. But if you're anything like me, um, I absolutely love being right. I'm I'm right 95% of the time. It's great. Um, You should experience life as me. It's really good. I'm more often than not right. Occasionally, occasionally, it's rare, I'm wrong. But it's not very common. But, you know, imagine, if you will, the situation. I'm at home, and, and Katie confronts me with something I've done wrong. I know it's almost theoretical, it's so unlikely. But just picture it, that she tells me this. Like, how do you think I respond? Um, do I buy her a gift? I'm like, oh, thank you so, I'm so pleased. You're, this is marvellous. Keep it coming. No, my default response is defensiveness. Like, if I'm confronted with something that I cannot deny that I'm wrong on, you're kind of caught, aren't you? What do you do? But I'm, I, I don't want to stay in that place. I'm like, okay, we, we've got that. Right. Let's, I want to move on as quickly as possible because it's profoundly uncomfortable to see where we're wrong. It's profoundly uncomfortable. We don't want it. We push it away wherever it comes because we don't want to see ourselves in that way. And, and here's the push of renewal, is that when we pray that prayer... God raises that stuff in us, again, not to shame us, but to transform us. But it's uncomfortable. And unless we know that, unless we're expecting the push, we won't, we'll fill a pull, but we'll just walk away. And as I've said, we, we find ourselves in our society in a, in a moment of real crisis. We find ourselves in the church in a moment of real crisis and we can panic and we go, oh gosh, what are we going to do? And, but I wonder this. I think that crisis, whilst it's not something that God intends, is actually a moment of opportunity. What if this present moment of crisis isn't, isn't this moment of just sheer despair, but is actually a moment of God's invitation to us? Because you see what, the, what a crisis does is it exposes. A crisis exposes the things we've put our trust in that can't deliver. A a, a crisis, you know, exposes our our kind of fragility as humans to solve the problems of this world and to solve our own problems and to fix ourselves. We get brought to a place where we recognize, I'm not the answer. 
you know, there is more openness in society now for, for God than there has been for a long time because the other options we've been trying and they haven't working. You know, people are giving up on politics. Why? Because it's quite obvious it's not the answer to our problems. It can go so far, but it hits a glass ceiling. You know, there's loads of things where we can go so far, but we hit the glass ceiling. Money can't solve all problems. You know, healthcare can't solve all problems. We all still die. And a moment of crisis brings us to that place of recognizing the fragility of our humanness. And a moment of crisis brings us to that place where the things we've put our trust in are, are taken away, and so we can't put our trust in them anymore. There's been a real spate of articles by people around my age, sort of millennials, re writing recently, just being a bit depressed, and, and sort of saying, you know, I grew up thinking that basically life would just get better and better and better. I'd climb the job train, I'd earn more and more money, and I'd have nice and more increasingly pleasurable experiences. And a cost of living crisis comes in, and all of a sudden, people are realizing that they might never be able to buy a house. And, 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 you know, there's been articles written of people who are like, oh, I was really hoping for this kind of like young and free lifestyle when I hit my 20s, and, and I can't afford to go out, and so I'm just staying in. But despite the depressing nature of those moments, they are moments of God's invitation because they are moments where the idols, the things we put our trust in, are shown for what they are. They're shown for not delivering. And so what if instead of it being a moment of despair and scrabbling around, actually we see it as a moment of God's invitation to us as his people, an invitation to a movement of renewal where God will restore us, where God will change us, where God will renew us as his church from a place of apathy to a place of passion, from a place of uncertainty to a place of confidence, from a place of indifference to a place of compassion, from a place of aloofness to a place of care, from a place of kind of bravado to a place of vulnerability, from a place of being the critic from a place to a place of kind of being the encourager, from a posture of fear to a posture of faith, from a posture of anger to a posture of love. What if this is the moment of invitation where God wants to do that in you? I believe that God is inviting every single one of us to his movement of renewal. It's uncomfortable, but it's good. And the good news is, it's not about what we do, but it's about what he does in us. And so I don't care who you are. I don't care how able or not you are. I don't care how desperate life's got. God can renew you because it doesn't require you. It just requires him. All we have to do is, is just be open to it. Posture ourselves in openness to it. Create the space to allow him to renew us. And so how might we respond to God's invitation today? Because an invitation has to be responded to, right? You get an invitation, it comes through the door. It's not enough to just RSVP. You know, you've got to do that, but you also need to show up and, and ring the doorbell. And, and this invitation's even better because it's an invitation that's come through our door, but the party's come to our door. You know, all, all we've got to do is open the door, but we, but we have got to open the door. It won't open itself, else the party will just help on our doorstep. We've got to open our door. And so how will we respond? And if we do respond with a yes, I want to give us three questions to ponder. And the three questions are this. What pattern of prayer are you going to respond with? I would suggest it doesn't need to be fancy, it doesn't need to be glamorous, but if you don't have a pattern of prayer, and that could simply be five minutes at the same time every day, I'd recommend the same time because always it becomes um, less a thing of habit and routine and more a thing of whether you feel in the mood, which 
you'll probably find if you're anything like me, you often don't. Um, so what, what's the pattern of prayer? Because if you don't have that pattern of prayer, it's very difficult to be open to God um, and what he's wanting to do in us because our heads will just be in something else. So what's the pattern of prayer we're going to respond with? Second, what might God be calling you to let go of or to stop or to disbelieve? Maybe there's been something you've put in your trust in, your hope in for this life, and, and maybe God's wanting to just highlight to you that that's not working because he's wanting to renew you. What might that be? And finally, who is God calling you to go with? Because he never calls us to go alone. Um, you know, at Redland, um, if you've been here a while, you know this, but we, we run grow groups. They're groups of people who gather together each week to kind of support our, each other in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Um, maybe that could be a way um, in which you could kind of partner with others in this because it's not something we can do by ourselves. However we do it, we, we've got to do it with others because it's easy to get discouraged and to give up. How will we respond? God is inviting us. Should we pray? Should we stand? We're just going to pray and we're just going to invite God to come and meet with us um, and speak to us. You might find it helps to close your eyes. It's not particularly um, more spiritual. It just stops you being uh, distracted by the person in front. Amazing haircut. Um, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're a God of renewal. A God who never gives up on us. A God who never gives up on this world, but is wanting to restore it. And you start that in us. And I just pray you'd come and meet us right now. And I pray you'd come and renew us right now.